I mean, I think that the kind of the historical um, archive that is being generated, both in the news and on preprint servers, will be a fascinating trove of information to trawl through um, with hindsight um, to be able to see how these ideas are created and moved and how they enter the public perception. Welcome to Further Research Needed, a petting zoo for science enthusiasts. This is the podcast with straightforward questions and not so straightforward answers. I am Hannes Feirer, and for this episode, I am joined by my friends and very petable scientists, Jan Philipp Weising and Chris Wood. Today, we are asking the question Is pivoting research towards the crisis good for science? And we are approaching this question from three different angles, coming up in the episode. So, I think this is a highly relevant subject right now because we're in the midst of this um, COVID pandemic and what we see as researchers and at least I did and I think it's the same for both um, Jan Philipp and Chris is these, this insane amount of output we have right now of output of research papers um, which I look for on PubMed because that's where everything medically biologically relevant is and on preprint servers we see a lot as well Actually, so the first time when the this um, pandemic hit Europe, I started looking on PubMed already a bit. And when was it? I think in around March, we had something like 400 papers, meaning peer-reviewed papers that made it on PubMed already by March, meaning they went through the entire research pro- process, but then also peer review and, and editing and everything by March, which is super fast, considering the entire pandemic only took off in, uh, what was it, November, December in China? That's Yeah, and then it took a while. To actually reach Europe and... Exactly. There was 400 papers by March. Um, something in that ballpark. That's amazingly annoying. Like having tried to get papers published quickly and having them kept yeah. in review for like years. Well, not years. But nearly a year was my longest paper I had to, from, from submission. So the paper on the work was done from submission to publication was a year. And to have them already having 400 papers about covid that's outrageous now get this i did the same search again so i'm looking for a sars minus cov which would include the first and second sars immersed pandemic and uh, the current ongoing covid19 pandemic we have right now it's late may on pubmed only published this year 4000 roughly 4500 papers peer reviewed on pubmed how the hell is that possible all the papers with um, before 2020, so um, they started in the 90s, but to be honest, between 1992 and 2002 was only 76 papers. And then we have 2,500 papers between 2002, which was the first SARS pandemic, and this one now. So we have already now in these five months, two times as many papers as the entire time before, which was roughly 20 years. That is insane to start with. I'm not sure about both of you. Are you kind of involved in some kind of COVID research at all? Personally, no. My group might pivot slightly, but not my right. project personally. Chris, you're in diagnostics. How about you? Yeah. So um, again, personally, I'm uh, developing a diagnostic for a different disease, but uh, people directly at the same lab bench as me are using, are trying to improve the COVID tests that exist. So, um, yeah, well, the, our lab has already, already pivoted, um, and applied for funding to pivot. So 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, somewhat similar for me. At least in my direct vicinity, people worked on it a lot. There's uh, one biosafety cabinet in our in our cell is only dedicated to COVID work. Yeah, around us, we, we see this a lot. And I think most people listening know someone or might even work on COVID or at least their group might themselves. We, I couldn't but wonder what effect does this have on science? And I want to investigate this question. Again, the question is, is pivoting research towards the crisis good for science? And the crisis in this case, is, of course, is COVID, but I guess we can discuss this for uh, many other crises as well. I want to discuss this question from three aspects. The first one is the effect the preprint servers have on science, because most things that we send around right now and most papers that we find are not peer-reviewed, but are still preprints. And the second question is... Does the outcome of this research that we find right now, does it actually help to solve the crisis or to deal with it? The third angle is the interaction of the public with the ongoing research, which I find particularly interesting right now. So I think, again, I just mentioned that the preprint servers are something that are super relevant right now because they enable us to put new results out there right now. And it has some this notion of um, public data sharing, which is arguably super important. Yeah, so for everybody, maybe a short explanation. What is a preprint server and how is it different from like other forms of publishing? The basic idea when you publish something is you send it to the journal and they ask people to review it, give you comments, then you kind of integrate these comments and then it's being published. But if you choose to go to a preprint server, you basically upload your, your manuscript that you would send to a publisher afterwards before you actually get this kind of feedback and the advantage is that it's faster. So even if it takes a, a year, like Chris said, to actually for your data to come out, then people already have access, can kind of work with it. It's also free. It's free, yeah. However, there's a big caveat. No one has actually looked at this paper and it's not gone through peer review. So theoretically, the quality of the work is at least in question. Right, we have this kind of rigorous process of um, scientific publishing, and this is bypassed with these preprint servers. We just put it out instead of going through the peer review process. We could all right now write anything on a piece of paper or in a Word document and put it onto a preprint server, and it would be there. Yeah, I can. Let's do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you guys think? Is that we have the positive aspect of super fast data sharing and do you think it's worth the potential caveat of this not being peer-reviewed? I, I'm. I think it is worth it. I think the 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 big example from uh, the coronavirus currently was the speed at which the genetic sequence was distributed around the world for people to begin building PCR tests for it, um, and that that was that. You know, we we can't wait the traditional publishing times for that kind of information to be made available to everyone. Um, it's too, it just takes too long. Um, so having that moved onto a preprint and out there quickly is good. Yeah. The, I think it, it, it follows on to your, um, uh, a bit into your concept, the, the, the third question about the public perception of it, though. I'm not sure the public and scientists themselves uh, have the conceptual framework now to deal with preprints as they should be dealt with, with a healthy dose of skepticism, um, knowing that they are just a way of getting 
whatever theories out there before they become tested slightly more rigorously looked at by others in the community. Um, because I, I definitely noticed that, especially in this, in this pandemic, newspapers are jumping on pre-printed journal, art, well, pre-print articles and, pub, and writing articles to the public saying, COVID is uh, cured by nicotine or this or that. And these, are, these aren't well rigorously done studies and they're coming out too quickly. And then you create this like noise of information, all contradictory and maybe wrong and all this sort of stuff. And it's, um, it's damaging because for people who trust science in the way the media portrays science, um, they now no longer know what to trust. And I think even that's not to do with non-scientists. I think scientists themselves are following. I've, I've had conversations with colleagues, not epidemiologists or whatever, who have read a preprint and started spouting out all sorts of nonsense. And you're like, this hasn't been peer reviewed. This isn't, you can't stop repeating this, stop, you know, maintaining the illusion. So um, I think it's yeah. good. And I think it will just take some time. I think just as, you know, old people can't really deal with misinformation on Facebook, but the youth, the younger generation deal with any information given over Facebook with a healthy do- dose. That is of... so not true, but I get your point. Oh my point. God, it's so true. I have had it, one, co- my favorite conversation. I would say younger generation can deal with this much, can deal with this better. I think the younger generation is as gullible for misinformation, misinformation on Facebook, but a, that's not the topic here, right? A conversation with someone, um, much older than me, I had about social media was they, they couldn't work out why people would let you post misinformation. It was like, why would they bother posting misinformation? Why would that help? And you're like, but that's not how the system works. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, I right. think I think it will take a few years and or a few generations of scientists before the conceptual framework will be built around preprints and we'll, we'll become much more skeptical as a result. So, um, yeah. Well, we can argue that the peer view following from that, because usually when you put up a preprint, then you were submitted to a journal and you put up this preprint to make sure you're not being scooped to kind of put your stamp on it and say, I was the first one discovering this. That the peer view later will flatten out all of these, all of these um, potential mistakes. And that might be true, just it doesn't really help right now, because right now a lot of institutions focus on these preprints. And I think well, first, this is probably a new thing when compared to all other crises because these preprint servers are new and we haven't had that. I don't think even in the first SARS pandemic, which was, of course, much milder than the one we're experiencing right now, um, but definitely also in most other other situations. And second, there's this one paper, I think, that has been that has not been peer reviewed. I think you know what I'm talking about. There was this um these simulations from uh, Imperial College in in London, which has been going around the entire planet, I think at least for me personally, caused a lot of um, worry very early on because before we could actually say how this was going to hit Europe. And if I'm not mistaken, um, government policies were kind of built on that. And I think this is a good example for. I don't know if peer review would, peer review would have helped in that case. Or if it's just a matter of simulation based on not such great data. But in the end, I think that's um, one of the big papers that 
got a lot of um, attention. But I think it's also really difficult right now because you're you're looking with your knowledge right now back and hindsight is 2020, right? So if I understand you correctly, you're saying the prediction of that paper were kind of overblown to the reality that actually set in. And I feel that's a bit difficult to say, right? Because if that paper wouldn't have been published, you don't know what the situation would have been if everybody would have been a lot less concerned. No, sure. I wouldn't wouldn't say how good or bad this paper was or how how much we should have trusted it or should have not trusted it. I, I cannot I cannot make the claim. I just think we all focus on it very much while knowing it was not peer-reviewed. And again, I still cannot say now if it was right or wrong. But I just found it interesting that we did that no one really cared. Everyone knew, well, it's just a preprint, but it seems to be well done. And also the authors um were not just from some place, but from Imperial College, and that's of course always helps in credibility. I, th I think that's actually um, quite a good example of what preprints, the, the light that preprints are beginning to shine on um, the way government policies are enacted and decisions are made. Because previously, without preprint servers, th that sort of modeling would have been done by a government department and made, they would have write, written a white paper, which would have been sent between governments. Um, but that white paper would never have been seen by the rest of the world. And so decisions would be made on spurious modeling data or whatever. And that's probably what happened in the previous crises or whatever. But we've had no, uh, we'd have no evidence of what, what the model was based on or where that came from. Right. It would, this model also would have not been peer reviewed. No, yeah, exactly. Governments do make decisions, make big, you know, policy decisions based on models and epidemiological data that isn't peer reviewed. It's just, you know, the government epidemiologist decided this is the good model. And so it's kind of nice that we're starting to see this and we can have this kind of um, debate. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's might be interesting in the future, looking back at the preprints, the data coming from them and the public perception of that. Maybe I take the third question second since we're there right now. The interaction of the public with the ongoing research. Um, we see a lot of media prints from um, bioarchives, from papers and bioarchives, or meta-archives, whatever. Um, this is being picked up a lot and they get, you call it a lot of noise, but in the end it's a lot of research that is put out to the public and the public reads it. Which is actually a good thing. Like one of the things we haven't talked about is that we are, like for the last months, we personally, but science in general for years and decades is saying the general public should interact more with science. Please listen to the scientists. And mm -hmm. just from my experience, a lot of people who have nothing to do with science are actually sitting down, reading the papers and trying to figure out what is true and interacting with this matter, which is really nice if you have a preprint because it's publicly available, right, for everybody. It's not behind a paywall or anything. So I think we're going to get into a lot of criticism how how the media and how the public interacts with these preprint services, but maybe to put that as a primer in front, it's a really good development, I think, that they do that in the first place. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's an amazing development and also a major challenge for science communicators to bring it to to distribute the science in a way that it's, it is understandable. I think people did a really good job with this. 
I, I think it's, I, I completely agree. I think it's fantastic the way people are engaging, not only with epidemiological modeling, um, but also with how um, clinical trials are being run and what, like, the levels of confidence you would want in a new vaccine or a new drug and mm-hmm. the conversations people are having and thinking about really do show what scientific research is and like how it's done. Because, you know, for every article saying there'll be an mRNA vaccine by the next week, there's another article saying mRNA vaccines are going to kill everyone. Let's not use that. And it, it, th- that discussion out in the open is, is excellent for the, for people's understanding of actually how science is, is, is conducted. Yeah, in a way, this global experiment we're running shows people how difficult it is to run any experiment. Yeah. and But also how difficult it is to develop a vaccine, how rigorous the testing must be for a vaccine, even though, like, how many are in trials right now? I don't even know. I think it's eight or so. Eight, sure. I, I find it fascinating. Some people might get overwhelmed easily. I think that's also fair. The output of of primary data right now is is enormous. But it also gives everyone the possibility to interact with the data on their own because we have we can get the raw numbers on um, hospitalization, um, confirmed cases, death rates, and, and so on. You find it on so many websites, right? And people are interacting with it a lot. So people are staying up yeah. to date and... What I found interesting is the way the data was presented has been shifting over the last weeks quite dramatically. So in the beginning, what you had were absolute numbers of infections. And then there was a lot of Mm -hmm. discussion, not only scientists, but also the general public saying, well, okay, your number of infections depends a lot on how many tests you're running, right? What's your capacity for testing? And then people started comparing different countries, Italy, Germany, the U.S., until they figure out, well, we actually need to look at the cases per population, right? Because otherwise, what are you saying? Of course, the U.S. has more cases than, for example, Sweden, because they have 300 million inhabitants, and Sweden does not. So this kind of stuff. So I found it really interesting over time that the kind of graphs that were being shown and the kind of data and the units and all of this kind of evolved in the media and in the population kind of going through the same process that we go through all the time, right? You start with a unit and then you figure out, okay, this is not a good unit for comparison. Um, so that process I yeah. thought was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I just wanted to say the almost exact same thing. And I learned a lot about epidemiology in that process because I was never really exposed to it. And I find the interesting how we as a society switched through different metrics metrics of um, evaluating how terrible this is right now, the severity of the pandemic. So I think at the very first instance when the virus came from China, first to northern Italy, and then I think it distributed around Europe, most of what we were focused on is is fatality rate, right? What would you have to expect here? And then people started to consider incidence fatalities, hospitalization. Then at some point, in Italy, we noticed that people will not only die of the virus, but because we exceed hospital capacity. And then I think much later on, maybe I want to say April or something, at least in Germany, people started to talk about the value or not, the um, infectious rate of the virus. And, and later on, we talked about 
now super hot is excess deaths. Like how bad is this actually compared to any other flu season or the, the last five years or so? And I found this very interesting and people focus on different things and maybe even shows different metrics that fit their opinion on the pandemic in the question, should we have a lockdown or not? Um, well, ex excess deaths didn't change, so maybe there's no need for a lockdown or, or so on. I don't want to give an opinion here, but I think that's something people use a lot. What's um, it, it sort of follows from that in that um, depending on the narrative you want to, to tell, you can pick the metric that you're looking at. But also people have had a crash course in the quality of data, especially epidemiological data that you can um, acquire in as pseudo real time as you can get, because um, the reasons why we moved to things like excess death data was because, um, and it's particularly true, I've heard in uh, comparing Germany's uh, statistics, COVID statistics to other places in the world, is because of the method by which you record deaths, you rapidly change the numbers by saying, well, if you had an underlying health condition, uh, and COVID, you register the underlying health condition as the cause of death, not not COVID, and so on and so forth. And so these. Oh, really? Yeah. So people mm. um, are also becoming aware of what questionable data is, and the fact that there is some data does not mean you should accept that this is true. You need to question every single bit—the model, the data acquired, the fitting of that data to whatever. And so it's it, it's just a it's a phenomenal crash course in. Um, the intricacies of making scientific models and predictions and trying to enact any kind of policy from it. Uh, it's, it, it is fantastic. I think, I think that's the positive spin on it. The other thing is that it, it can be used by politicians and by people who are distrustful of science to, um, it reinforces the narrative that scientists are out, they don't know anything and they're, um, they're just making up as they go along. That's the sad thing. I think my takeaway would be a bit different. Like I completely agree that everybody got like a crash course in data interpretation and data collection and that kind of stuff. But the same thing has not happened for these like preprint manuscripts that are coming out, I feel like. Because in this case, it's basically just being reported to the public. But instead of actually looking at those manuscripts, basically, people are just believing it. Right. So with the with the actual data, people look at the graph, they discuss what kind of metric is being used and that kind of stuff. But I think a far smaller proportion of people is actually reading the primary literature, which is very understandable because it's not fun to read. It's really hard. You have a lot of jargon going on. But I feel like a lot of the confusions that the society in general has to deal with comes from this, that you're kind of getting your information secondhand and you're not looking at the raw data in those cases. So you can't really distinguish between good information and bad information. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very challenging. Um, the other thing that you just mentioned is the um, individual or the, the primary search that we that people picked up on. Um, it's almost anecdotal science in a way that ended up on preprints, I guess. And if we look back over the last six months now or so, the bits and pieces that people focused on, for example, a higher death rate in men than women, and then there was the nicotine patches from some study in France, and I don't even want to get into what's Trump's miracle drug, drug hydroxychloroquine. Exactly, this one. Um, there are so many of these things that 
we focused on for, or not we, but individual people and groups focused on for a short time and then dropped it again because maybe it didn't turn out to be a thing or so. I mean, I think that the kind of the historical um, archive that is being generated, both in the news and on preprint servers, will be a fascinating trove of information to trawl through um, with hindsight um, to be able to see how these ideas are created and moved and how they enter the public perception. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, this is probably the first time this has happened because the preprint servers haven't existed before. That will be something fascinating. You'll, we'll only find out like 10 years from now, but uh, you know, it's, it's good that it's happened. This kind of brings me to the third angle that I wanted to look at this question is what do you think does the primary research right now ongoing right now contribute to the solving the crisis and I don't mean epidemiological data because of course this is like testing the public and so on will of course be key to that but um, other things going on so, um, so just so as a, do you mean in the sense that we've all experienced where our labs have been asked or there have been these calls for funding related to COVID and yeah. the labs that we work in, which aren't virology labs or uh, aren't specifically looking at whatever. And then suddenly we're pivoting to the, to their to working on that. And um, yeah, you know, before we get there, I wanted to say two things. This sounds a bit like I want to criticize scientists shifting or using their expertise, which might be a different one, and applying it to whatever aspect COVID provides. I don't want to criticize that at all. I'm super happy that we as a scientific community can focus on one task. And even though most of us might not contribute to solving the crisis, there might be something coming out of it, right? That's what we want to discuss. But I'm super happy and grateful for all the scientists leaving their own individual targets behind and focusing on this together. Not just that no one quotes me wrong uh, incorrectly on this. I'm really happy this is happening. And second, I think this is insanely difficult to say right now because we're guessing, right? So what we can do instead is also looking at the past and how science interacted with um, crises in, in the last century or so. I think I'm a bit more cynical than Johannes. So what I... <laughs> surprise, surprise, I know. Um... <laughs> I feel like a lot of the the stuff that's coming out, not only on preprint servers, but even stuff that has gone through peer review, the quality is quite a bit lower than you, what you would usually accept. Um, at least that's my feeling. And one of the reasons I'm guessing is that labs or research groups or medical stuff that usually don't work in that kind of field are suddenly publishing in a field that's not their own. And I feel overall that leads to a decrease in quality. So as I said, that's my personal opinion. That's my, yeah, that's how I feel. I don't have any proof to back this actually up, but I see that there's at least a risk that since everybody is jumping on the bandwagon, that they're kind of forcing their own research or their own expertise into a field that they maybe shouldn't and also taking away funding from people who might have better a better skill set or better facilities or better knowledge to actually deal with this. I believe it's in between these two points because I have a counterpoint to what you were saying in the sense that having labs or fields move into areas that they weren't originally in before can potentially lead to new insights 
Um, so I, I, but I do agree with you that I think the quality can take a hit when that happens. Um, it's just that it, um, potentially people didn't realize that, um, say, NMR could be useful for studying viral um, entrance into cells or however you want to, whatever you want to do. And suddenly that tool is now ready f- and there for, for this current crisis. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a, it is a, I think it's a balance between those two things. Ideally, you know, everyone would do the most perfect research um, all the time. Um, however, it is a crisis and there is a question as to whether due to, due to the need um, for rapid research right now, should we put some of our gold standard methods for um, identifying a true hypothesis aside in order to, to quickly try a lot of different new therapies or new theories on this sort of thing. Um, Because traditionally what happens, especially with, say, um, drug development, but also technology development in times of crises, is that a lot of the safety rules and um, exacting standards that you would have uh, when the crisis isn't happening are put aside for that crisis. I mean, this is especially true in times of war. Uh, but I would be interested to know what was what kind of crazy theories were trialed during the Spanish flu pandemic as well. I mean, I I agree with you for sure. Like usually, I'm a big fan of kind of having two separate fields come together to benefit from each other's methods. But one of the things that that I can actually see is that you have a lot of trials that on, not only don't use the the gold standard for that research field, but they're also working with like crazy low numbers of samples and that kind of stuff. So for example, you have um, data coming out, oh, we already have 40% of our population that has antibodies. And then there's another study that says, oh, it's only 10%. And then another one that says, oh, it's 95. And if you look at the studies, the different or the like the biggest weak point of all of them is the amount of participants you have in the study and then it's obvious to someone that is actually trained in in the scientific field looking at this if you have like 25 samples of course you're going to get like huge deviations from the actual value that you're talking about or maybe you have like huge biases in your um in the selection of the people that are participating in these studies that kind of stuff and i think that's extremely detrimental because if you have enough groups that switch into the COVID field, just by chance, you're going to have people that find something. So if you have a thousand groups that move into the field that weren't there before, they're doing all the same tests just by chance, you're going to have some that are going to find something that's significant. But that's good. Then we found something that's significant. It doesn't matter the way we found that, like whether it was intentional or not, we managed to do it. That's exactly why we're making this pivot to throw scientists at the problem because we've decided currently this problem is the biggest problem facing humanity that would be true if every one of them has like sample size that's big enough everybody has like thousands of people i think you talk about two different things here so what i'm saying is you have if you have a thousand studies with 25 people instead of one study with 25000 people then just from statistics you're going to have some of these groups that are going to find some kind of significant finding because their sample size is 25. Oh, I see, I see. Sorry, I, I thought you meant uh, running 
a thousand different trials of different drugs, you're bound to find one drug that works in, you know, just because you've tried that a thousand chemicals and you get that. But yes, I know, I see now. Serendipitous outcomes are definitely something we hope for, not only for COVID, but maybe for other crises. Also in a way, because if we look at, at least in the biomedical field, the things that are funded the most are um, cancer, neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases, and um, antibiotics for multi-resistant bacteria, right? And viruses are nowhere in there. Mm. I wouldn't say that's not major focus of our research right now. Right, Philip is not in one in in any of them, so maybe this way is looking weirdly right now. I'm not sure. I think, like for example, this research regarding better ways to find to find vaccines has been going on for lo way way longer than the COVID crisis. Like the all of these new fancy ways to produce vaccines fast has been going on for 10 years. And I don't want to say other things aren't researched on, but but that's the three big fields that biomedical research um, or funding focuses on. I mean, that, that seems to be more of a failure of our funding model outside of the pandemic. Like we should have had a more balanced funding portfolio where we, well, it's not to say that there wasn't good research being done because the viral, um, this, this, um, these novel coronaviruses were being studied, especially in the bat populations in, um, Asia and, and these sorts of things. So, there was a bit of capacity already out there ready to pick up on this and find the genome and be ready to... I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen some of the papers published like eight years ago, five years ago, saying that if there was a place where coronavirus was going to occur in the... It was going to... Like a, a new outbreak of a coronavirus was going to happen. It was going to be in... Uh, sort of the East Asian uh, area and it would particularly problematic in these wet markets and stuff like this. So it's, it's kind of scary how prescient these articles were. Philip, do you want to talk about the, what was it, the Drosten Lab and their um, diagnostic tool that was developed already? I don't have like super detailed knowledge, but basically the PCR test or the all the PCR tests that we are using are based on an initial test that was researched in Germany. And what it looked like from the outside was, oh, the pandemic hit. And then somebody sat down and developed this PCR test to test for the no new coronavirus. But what actually happened is that they already had produced a test that was um, kind of distinguishing the standard coronaviruses that you already had in the population from these novel coronaviruses that we already knew about in the in these bad populations. So the test was already done and it was quite lucky or like good planning on <laughs> behalf of the Drosten lab that that test that they already had also works for the current pandemic. So they all, we're already doing research on that topic, and that's why we have the test so far. So, for example, if you look at the U.S., the CDC insisted on producing their own PCR test, and they had a lot of problems in the beginning rolling it out. So they rolled it out, and then they figured out, oh, there was, like, stuff going wrong. And as I said, I'm not, like, super into the details, but I think one of the reasons is that basically that German lab had a lot of head start. They were already doing research. So... In terms of basic research funding, that's 
sort of a success story, we would have waited a lot longer if this lab wouldn't have done all the work before the corona crisis started. Right. So what do you guys think? Um, to what extent did science contribute to crises before um, either similar pandemics? Or maybe even want to ask a question, to what other crises can science even contribute? I would say to economic crises, not much. Am I wrong? I mean, not biomedical research, but there's a lot of research, like economic research going on. Right. Do you think their their output can can help during a economic crisis on the on the fly? I think they definitely try. I mean, how well it worked is like mm -hmm. depends on the on the situation. But I'm sure that during the financial crisis, that you had experts from universities coming in suggesting based on their research how to fix it. I think, but it was not as prominent yeah. in the media. So I think this this is quite a special situation in history that you have a crisis going on and everybody kind of in real time looking at at the scientific research that is coming out. There is an example from a very different field, which is, um, well, I guess the famous story of the Manhattan Project, of um, people figuring or scientists figuring out how to split the atom in the 30s and this being used to, to make bombs in, in the ongoing war. So I think that's, I don't want to call this a success story, but at least for scientific progress, I think it, it kind of was. There's an interesting distinction, because another one that often gets um, talked about in the same vein as the Manhattan Project is the um, space race. And there's a distinction to be made between engineering a problem and, science, and, and a science problem, um, because in a lot of cases, it's a question of economic allocation and um, engineering capacity to solve a problem. And in the other sense, it's um, a question of do we understand or do we have a new model or theory to to um, to be able to engage with the problem. And um, certainly for the space race, it was an engineering problem and about whether how much GDP you could commit to the problem. And that solved it. Right. You mean the science was out there. Exactly. And I think one of the issues with the COVID crisis is that governments are thinking about the vaccine in terms of a economic commitment. Like if we spend a trillion dollars, we will get a vaccine in a week, but we can't spend a trillion dollars. So we'll spend a billion dollars. So we'll get it in a thousand weeks. You know, they, 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 they don't see that there needs to be that the that insight doesn't scale with investment in that sense. Um, and it's very difficult to, because scientists often say, look, if you pay us more money, we'll have more science, we'll do more science, we'll, we'll get more stuff done. And that is true to a certain extent, but also it depends on the tools you have. Uh, it, it depends on a complex network of different, you know, ideas, tools, and uh, the right person at the right time. Um, even if you're just looking at the right way for a new scientific theory to be, to be developed. Yeah, I completely agree that like that's something I discussed with my parents, that they had the idea, oh, we're just going to pour more money into science and then we're going to have the vaccine in autumn instead of spring next year or whatever the, the current estimate is. Yeah, I had a hard time explaining that there's definitely a correlation, but it's not as simple or linear as you would imagine. Also because of the people, like you don't have as many virologists, like there's a, a set number of virologists that you can kind of entice to maybe work on COVID. But once you start 
like recruiting more people from different fields, you get a kind of like diminishing returns. Someone who's like a professor for music would probably not significantly contribute to like COVID research. Maybe, yes, but like, yeah, diminishing returns. But, and it may be impossible, physically impossible to create a, uh, a vaccine because the virus's protein coat mutates too quickly. And, you know, that's why we don't have a cold vaccine. It's not for want of trying. It's because there is a actual physical reason why we cannot create the vaccine like we could create a polio vaccine mm. um, and why we haven't done it. Um, I think another example that might also be interesting and closer to the situation is if you think about the first computer. So the UK developed or basically had this super secret research facility to try and crack the um, Nazis. The Enigma. Yeah, exactly. The Enigma, the description device of the Nazis. And Turing and his team basically came up with the first computer to crack mm. the code, which had a very significant turn how the war went. And I think that's sort of comparable because you had an ongoing crisis that needed a scientific solution and that made a huge leap in terms of of the knowledge that was available before and after. So there was like a like a really significant breakthrough in this process. The really sad thing with that story is that um, a lot of that information that was developed during the war in, in, at Bletchley Park was um, destroyed because the UK wanted to keep the uh, keep it secret, and so that information wasn't then propagated to researchers and the world. And so, in a way, the computer revolution had to be re reworked through in the US. You know, decades later, it's kind of kind of sad in that way. But yeah, it was it was an amazing like turn on the tap of science in that sense. I think you, Chris, mentioned that before, that especially from developments ongoing through war, we found a lot of more beneficial applications for for science uh, from from the science that happened. For example, um, well, in a way, penicillin was uh, developed or was found during the Second World War, and then the um, you can say it better than I did. Then the production was ramped up rapidly. Yeah, this this is a common um, narrative in a lot of scientific developments. Is it takes the uh, cri a crisis such as war to commit the allocation of resources needed to scale up the development of something. So the big ones are like the harbor process, um, which was developed to create a load of explosives for the First World War in Germany, but now feeds the world. Like th there are more people live than have died because of that development, um, even though originally it was a horrible de development. Um, the same, well, pe penicillin is actually a, a, a benign example in that only people have only survived because of it. Um, it was, but it, during the war, the, the production was scaled up in order to help troops survive from minor infections um, during the Second World War by the, by the Allies. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I think it may be just because our, societies the only time our societies make these rapid mobilizations um to some towards one one objective are tend to be war and pandemics but we've never had a rapid mobilization towards you know climate change which would be amazing to see but we haven't done that so 
I think one aspect that's interesting of all the examples that we came up with is that those things were very secret. So if you think about the Manhattan Project, which is a prime example, like no one knew what they were doing and it was kind of behind closed doors. But in this case, like like the whole idea of today, right, with the preprint servers, people can follow almost in real time how science is thinking, what science knows, what it doesn't know. And if you, like all of the podcasts I listen to, it's almost overwhelming how they also switch their topics from what they would usually talk about to COVID. Like The Economist, Science Versus, mm. like I could name like a dozen podcasts who switched over and it kind of speaks to this yeah, very, very special thing that you have this crisis, you have the science, but you also have like the like this openness for at least of all the examples we found the first time that the public can kind of watch science do its thing. Right. So if I can get back to the original question, is pivoting research towards the crisis good for science? From the last things we talked about, the answer would be an overwhelming yes. One thing you uh, you criticized in the beginning was that the the quality of the research potentially might drop because of the rush it's put out with. But in the end, we see that people engage with science much better, which is better for society and the science and the interaction between both, which is, I guess, super important. But also um, the amount of serendipitous findings we would we might get from the, the ongoing research could is definitely a good thing for science. Would you agree there? Yeah, I think overall, you know, in, in if you look at it in a longer term time, sca- time span, the things we may find out about the world and especially how humans operate is going to be very interesting and very useful. I think comparing it to a, comparing it whether whether we should have pivoted or whether we should have kept research as it is, I suppose that's one of those questions that's almost impossible to uh, answer. Although looking back in 10 years time at what happened over this crisis, we might be able to inform the next crisis as to whether we should pivot or not pivot. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode on crisis and science. We recorded this episode in May and published it now in August and the crisis is still far from over. The topic is equally relevant and in a few years you probably look back and see the research in a very different light. Hopefully many serendipitous findings will have come out of it. If you want to send comments, questions or feedback, you can get in touch on Twitter at Further Research Needed or email under contact at frn-podcast.com. This is also our website where you can find other podcast hosters and link to our Patreon and potentially some announcements. frn-podcast.com If you want to support the show, consider becoming a Patreon. We have exciting rewards waiting for you. Music credits go to Jay Patterson. Check him out. His music is fantastic. Thank you for listening and see you for the next one.